do you ever do that thing where you walk past a map and you immediately judge the heck out of it? Because you look at it and you look at Sudan, and if it doesn't have South Sudan, you're like, what have you been doing for 12 years? This has definitely not been built in like 12 years ago. Where is South Sudan? That is my litmus test for all maps. So no, I, I don't do that. Um, you should do it. There are so many. Well, so many no, clones. here's the thing, because I don't walk by maps every day. Oh. I, I, mean, I wish I did. It'd be really cool. Um, <laughs> but I don't. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily judge a map too hard because it can't really help when it was created. But, but, no, that's um, a, didn't, but that's you thing, did that, oh. though, didn't you? To the to the map that, um, oh, yes. that you got. You just oh. took a Sharpie and yeah. drew in South Sudan because, yeah. <laughs> by God, we need to recognize South Sudan on this map. Hey, that map was incorrect. Thank you very for everyone's knowledge. That was my fiance who got me this really nice, like she made a map set for me where it had, it, it just looks really nice, but it didn't have South Sudan on it. So, so I took you a black defiled Sharpie. her present <laughs> just to prove a point. I didn't, it wasn't to prove a point. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. It was a principle, sir. So, so are you going to draw a little squiggle around Crimea and recognize that as part of Russia? Or are you going to keep that in Ukraine? I have a, so I actually did do something about that, and I drew a black line on either side of Crimea, so it is not part of Russia, and it is not part of Ukraine. What is this, Schrodinger's Peninsula? It is Schrodinger's Peninsula right now. It belongs <laughs> to nobody, in my opinion. This is the Orientalist Express Podcast, episode 21. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Our show brings together young professionals from all around the world to discuss topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. Our goal is to make American foreign policy exciting, interesting, and easy to understand for the everyday person. Today, we are joined in the virtual studio by fellow South Dakota State University graduate, Stephen Howard. Hello! Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. On this episode, Stephen and I debate just how important it is for one nation to recognize the territorial claims of another. Specifically, we're going to look at America's recognition of Israel's claims over the Golan Heights, a critically important plateau seized from Syria by Israel during the 1967 Arab-Israeli War, and Israel's claim to the city of Jerusalem as its capital. Though previous administrations refused to recognize either of these claims due to the extremely tense situation in the region, the Trump administration has reversed decades of long-standing policy, and some might say conventional wisdom. So far, no other major nation has recognized these claims. So today, we try to answer the question, does any of this even matter? Should the average American care, or will we all just forget about this in a few weeks anyway? Well, I, I think we should start off by saying it's, uh, Nick, you wrote a great article on this, um, the Orientalist Express. I did, thank I, you, I forgot to plug that. I was about to say, yeah, you're not, you're not getting the full amount there. I got, I, got, a, log, I you... got a log roll that, right? Yeah, well, that, and that's really what started this entire conversation as well, because I read that and I, I kind of I, I kind of disagreed with it a little bit. Um, I don't know if you want to give the rundown on exactly what the kind of the are the premise of the article was real quick. I'm not sure I'll do it justice. Yeah, essentially the premise of the article was um, 
to talk about how, well, first, you know, of course, I gave the, the background history of all of it. So Golan Heights is a very strategic plateau that surrounds um, Israel, Syria, Lebanon, and even Jordan. It's kind of right smack in the middle of all four of those nations. And uh, as I mentioned, the Golan Heights was seized by Israel during the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. And the reason why it's important is because it's a giant plateau, right? So it sits high up off the ground. You have a vantage point of uh, the entire region. So you can see the Syrian capital of Damascus from it. You could actually see a lot of the heavily populated Israeli cities from this plateau. And so it makes perfect strategic sense. So ever since this, uh, this uh, seizure in 1967, Israel has functionally controlled this territory. And, um, and no one's necessarily disputing that aspect of it. But nobody, no other nation has said that they're going to recognize this claim. Because Israel did annex, formally tried to annex this territory in, I believe it was 1981. Uh, but nobody wanted to recognize that because they thought, you know, look, this is going to make a lot of key players in the region very upset. And so the Trump administration um, decided to recognize that claim. But the reason that I had, uh, I took issue with that is when, so when the United Nations was founded, uh, one of the key tenets of this, of this body was that we no longer want to recognize territorial uh, seizures through military means. So if another nation invades another and takes that territory, we want to try to put a stop to that. Basically a way to stop another giant world war from happening. So that was point number one. Point number two is that it really helps destroy the peace process even more, at least in the case of um, the recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, for sure. Um, kind of destroys the peace process. It makes things very difficult in that regard. And then, um, you know, even from just a more transactional type of feel, the United States got nothing functionally out of this recognition of Jerusalem or of the Golan Heights. I mean, except for maybe Israel is now slightly happier with us, so that's certainly worth something. But, um, you know, as far as the great art of the deal, I'm not necessarily sure I see one here. So that was essentially what uh, the summary. Yeah, and I, so when I read that, I had read, I'd focused mostly on the Golan issue because I, I tend to agree with you on the Jerusalem issue. I think that was a bad move. I think that makes the situation more intractable in terms of any sort of peace process with the Palestinians. And to be honest, it was unnecessary and it did get us a lot of flack for no gain. The Golan Heights issue, I actually see differently. So, like you've said, the Golan Heights has been controlled for Israel for by a while, for a while now, and it is a strategically important portion of you'd want to say Israel's uh, frontier. So it's defense measures. And to be honest, I don't think the world is going to care very much when if uh, Israel completely de jure uh, seizes uh, the Golan Heights. And I, I guess I should clarify. When I say de jure, it means uh, by law. So you have, if the example is like pirates. If a pirate seizes a ship on the waters, they de facto, so by facto, they control that ship. De jure, by law, they do not control that ship. So it got to, I guess you got to, two different situations going on with that. The power play in the reality of the aspect is Israel controls it. By law, and by international, I guess, expectation, Israel technically is not the owner of the Golan Heights. The change in that comes from all international recognition of the Golan Heights being Israeli. And this is a step towards that. 
well, it makes it difficult because this is all, you know, not to get too philosophical. This is all just a construct of the imagination. I mean, these are all just I recognize this, yeah. I don't recognize that. And when you get enough together, it sort of means that now this recognition is de jure instead of de facto. Yeah, and it does matter to an extent because it does obviously anger Syria to a point because that's their territory as of right now. The seizure of that territory, though, I don't think abrogates any norms that are happening because I personally believe that the norm of the UN norm of not taking land via uh, warfare hasn't really been a thing. And especially in today's era where you have creeping, I guess, uh, military encroachments. So Russia is taking portions of Ukraine. China is taking the South China Seas. You have a whole bunch of military seizures happening that are basically being forced to be recognized. I don't believe there is any norm to be broken at this point in time. And then second, I don't, like I was saying, I don't believe the rest of the world is really going to care that much about this issue when it comes down to it. So the United States recognizes it, and there's going to be one week of outrage. And as Nick said earlier, after two weeks, no one's going to remember it happened. No one, unless it's a specific issue dealing with the Golan Heights that reignites people's memory, you're going to ask people, hey, what do you think about the Golan issue? And they're going to go, uh, is that from a game? I, I don't know what that means. And it's, it's, it's just not super important. I mean, it's not, it's not super important to, you know, the average everyday listener and understandably so it doesn't really change anything in their daily lives. But, um, I mean, it is important to, you know, a lot of the, the people who are sort of higher up in levels of government that have to deal with a lot of these, um, you know, sensitive diplomatic issues. And it is very important to the people directly on the ground, or at least surrounding the Golan Heights area. I would imagine that it, it impacts their lives a little bit. Sure, and I, it definitely does. But it well, so I'm going to disagree with the impacting of the lives because, like we've been saying, de facto, that Golan Heights has already been controlled by Israel for near 40 years. It's there is no change. Not the, the diplomatic recognition of it does not change any facts on the ground. Sure, sure, but doesn't doesn't that mean though, like? Just because, you know, functionally everybody kind of just forgets about it and and moves on, um, just because it doesn't have any obvious negative impacts or that these land seizures still happen, doesn't mean that we should just roll over and go, well, you know, we wanted to have a norm, but it doesn't sound like anyone's dealing with it or actually using it, so we'll just give it up. I mean, that's we won't we wouldn't do that in uh, Ukraine for Crimea. We're still gonna hold to no, that I'm... norm as much as possible. No, you're right. We're going to try to hold to the norm as much as possible. But when it comes to an issue like this, where it is kind of peripheral, it's not, it is going, it matters strategically for the military balance in the area, but it is basically just implementing it in law is really all it's doing it right, right now. When you're talking about like Crimea and Ukraine, we're talking about a actual invasion happening right now. And yes, we should oppose that. I think that it is worthwhile noting that Syria invaded or tried to invade Israel. And that is basically the what why the Israel seized the Golan Heights, because Syria had tried using the Golan Heights 
as a uh, staging point. They did it very ineffectively, um, but it is a very dangerous spot for Israel. It's not only is it hard to cross and elevated, it's sparsely populated. It's the perfect frontier, and whoever owns it owns that basically the offensive offensive advantage. Well, and just with the the hostility that Syria has shown Israel, I'm not sure that it's a uh, it's something that the rest of the world should at this point be upset about. So then, why don't we use that as the reason why we recognize Syria, Israel's claim of the Golan Heights? That's kind of one of the problems that I had too. Is we just said. Well, there's people there already on the ground that are Israeli forces, so I guess it's theirs now. We didn't do any sort of, you know, well, like you said, you invaded Israel. You know, this is this is what you get sure. for igniting a war, blah, blah, so on and so forth. Like, there's ways to yeah. to, to spin that and to actually to, to say that with that actually kind of still uphold that norm without just saying, well, your troops are there, so it's yours now. Well, and I think that, but I do think that that, one way or another does impinge on the norm because if you're taking territory from a country as a penalty uh, for what they have done, you can, it's just like uh, the current idea of declaring the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization. Yeah, of course, you can declare them as a terrorist organization and they can come back and declare the United States Army as a terrorist organization right back. What's the reciprocal effect there? Um, so this isn't something that you that we really want to, uh, gosh, this isn't something that we want to encourage, like what you said earlier, but when it's a fact on the ground already, and that's the big thing for me, is this is a fact on the ground already, that it's going to be much easier to get across and to an extent, uh, much easier to recognize. I will say that I don't think the U.S. got anything out of this, out of the recognition at all. I think this is a victory for Israel strategically, and I think this to be honest, I think this stabilizes the area a little bit more because I don't, I don't know, I, I, I could be horribly wrong on this, but I don't think Israel has any plans of seizing any more territory north of the Golan, north or east of the Golan Heights. That being said, if they do, it's obvious, obviously the rest of the world should oppose that, but. Well, and I, I would agree with you. I think it's interesting that you said north and east of the Golan Heights, but not necessarily west of the Golan Heights, which um, for our listeners is where Lebanon currently sits. And Israel has actually invaded Lebanon and then pulled out. And yeah, it's been a whole mess there as well. Well, and that's so I, I should uh, state that it I don't think they should move west of the Golan Heights either. But there's significantly less territory west of the Golan Heights yeah. than there is east and uh, north of it. Well, no, I, I I don't think that Israel is looking for any more, you know, no, I don't think military so. So, style seizures but in that of way, major this, land territories. Even if this is so, this is a contentious diplomatic move, but it does stabilize the area because that is a natural boundary, that is a natural frontier that Israel's not going to want to move across. That other countries are going to have problems moving across. That freezes all countries' uh, borders at that point right there. And so strategically in the long term, I think that this, it could be considered a good thing. I don't think the United States got anything out of it. I think this is purely an Israeli victory. I And a victory I for don't think, Benjamin Netanyahu since his uh, oh, elections are coming Lord, up. Yes. 
Well, yes, it's a very big rhetorical victory for him. Because, oh, look at, oh, now it's formally a part of Israel, ha ha ha. And he can try to use that to bank off of him. I, I just don't see the uh, tenderness of the issue with what everyone else sees. I don't think this is going to be a long-term issue. I don't think this is going to be, honestly, I don't think this is really going to be a midterm issue. This is a very short issue. That's not going to matter when it comes down to it in two years. Well, and that's that's probably why it got so much play, especially in the United States for, you know, at least a couple of days, was um, mm. it's just more of an emotional, you know, oh, look, President Trump uh, erodes yeah. another norm that, you know, okay, well, we've seen that headline how many, you know, hundreds of times by now. So um, it's just kind of more of an emotional reaction at that point. Oh, I, I definitely agree. And that's, I think that, to be honest, President Trump's, uh, he can make any decision at this point right now, and it's still going to go over badly. It could be even a good decision. It's still going to go over badly. I don't think this was necessarily a good decision, to be honest. I think this is a decision that doesn't help the United States, and it doesn't hurt the United States. It's just a decision. It's not going to help with our relations with Syria, but we basically have no relations with Syria. Um, True, but it will harm our relations with Lebanon, or at least it very likely could. It could, and I think those could be repaired to at least a small extent, because as you said in your article, there are portions of the Golan Heights that had belonged to Lebanon, and I think that fair compensation could be made for those small portions. That's not an overwhelming majority of Lebanon. Um, yeah, it's it's a small area known as the Sheba mm-hmm. Farms. It's not very not very big, but um, as far as I know, that has been included in uh, in the recognition with with Israel. Yeah, I haven't heard so, that it's been excluded. I should say. I think that is a. I think that could be a thorny portion because I yeah. do our our relations with Lebanon as they are right now are tenuous, anyways, because of Hezbollah. But I don't think it's going to significantly impact anything. I think this is a a rhetorical victory for anyone who wants to go after Israel. But it's just one more rhetorical victory in a line of rhetorical victories that really, they don't actually mean anything. And that's, that's really the big thing is none of this really means anything. The United States didn't win. The United States didn't lose. Syria lost and Israel won. And that's, it's basically the long and short of it in, in the long term. Yeah, and I, I can, you know, functionally agree with you on at least kind of the aspect that it, it probably doesn't change a whole lot, realistically. I just, maybe I'm putting a little bit more deference to the idea of we ought to keep these norms in place as much as possible and to push back when it appears that they have been violated. Sure, but then wouldn't we have had to push back in the 1960s when they actually took control of the Golan Heights? I mean, that's well, there, that was there the, was plenty of pushback, maybe not necessarily in the United States, because no, and that's yeah. the thing. It's in the United States. It's if there was going to be pushback on the taking of Golan Heights, it should have happened as the military victory or the actual physical occupation happened. Not once that not way, way, way further when that occupation has basically just been recognized as, hey, this has been the case for like 40, 50 years. It's an entire generation of people now. It's this is basically the reality of the area. We need to recognize it. It is. But um, I do feel that there's one aspect that this could potentially cause some serious issues. And what was that? this is the one that I've been waiting to hammer you on. And you already know it's coming because <laughs> you read that article this morning, too. Um, 
But I I think that this can embolden Israel to take more drastic steps. And what we're talking about here is, uh, so there's an article this morning that Benjamin Netanyahu was saying that if he is elected in the upcoming elections, he would annex the West Bank settlements. Yeah, and that is, that is a huge problem. And I actually do want to separate that from the Golan issue as well, because I believe those are fundamentally different I guess they they are fundamentally different, but could it not be argued that he's taking the stance because he sees that the United States is behind him 100%. No, and I I completely agree with you there. And I think that the United States diplomats should make it very obvious to BB that we are recognizing your occupation of the Golan Heights. We will not recognize an assault to take the West Bank. You do not control the West Bank. This is not the same thing just because you're building settlements in there and kind of insidiously encroaching on everyone else's territory. That is not the same thing. And this is not some defense issue anymore either. You had a, in the West Bank, you had good amounts of, I guess, land and uh, territory to act as frontier buffers between you and the nearest other settlements. You have decided to build settlements closer and closer and closer, and it is you that are fundamentally wrong at this point in time, and that is what should be made absolutely clear. Well, not but, not to mention the you know forty foot concrete wall that yeah. cuts Jerusalem in basically in half. Yeah, as if well, that as if that wasn't enough to cause security, plus the buffer zones as you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. So one thing I just in case anyone's not aware, listening to this, so the settlements essentially. Um, the Palestinians uh, pretty much reside within an area of East Jerusalem, but ever since, um, I believe it's the 1980s, I want to say. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, Stephen. But uh, I think you're right. Israel has been essentially taking uh, over sections of that West Bank territory, expelling the Palestinians who live there, and then building new houses and settlements uh, for their own Israeli citizens to occupy and to live in. And so that's been a serious area of contention that it sounds like now Benjamin Netanyahu is saying he's going to annex those settlements, which, um, and I'll post up a map uh, on the website so everyone can take a look, but um, the amount of Palestinian territory is just increasingly getting smaller and smaller and more pocketed as these settlements expand. And in another way, I, I wouldn't be as concerned about that if Israel wasn't systematically depriving the Palestinians of any sort of political right when in Israel, as uh, they, I think the Knesset has specifically passed a law stating that Israel is Jewish and that precludes anyone else from being part of that country. So if Israel keeps taking and taking and taking land, which is currently settled right now from the West Bank, all those people are just losing rights and they are, it, it, it's becoming a situation where they are creating a worse and worse and worse situation strategically for themselves. Yeah. I, I, well, the problem there is, you know, so that one, there's already a lot of um, yeah. Arab Israeli citizens who it sounds like maybe their citizenship would be in question or something. I can't speculate on that necessarily, but um, it sounds like they wouldn't have quite the same rights as, as the Jewish citizens. Um, but then, yeah, kind of, as you're alluding to, eventually they're going to be stuck in that problem of, Look, you most uh, you know most of the world would say that you probably shouldn't have like a first class of citizens and a second class of people who aren't <laughs> citizens. Um, 
but if they were to rec- recognize them all with citizenship, then they would have to thus give them voting rights, and then all of a sudden the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, suddenly starts to look a lot more divided than mm-hmm. having a predominantly um, Jewish crop of uh, legislators. And it's getting down into the Israeli issue a little bit into the mud of the issue. It, that also comes down to the idea that this is, I, I don't know if, I don't think it's what the normal Israeli wants to happen, but they are making it into a apartheid state. I, I really don't believe that is what the normal Israeli wants. I don't believe that is what anyone in Israel besides a select few want. And I it just, I don't know. It's, it's infuriating to watch happen because this, like I said, this isn't the same as the Golan issue. This isn't something which has a small amount, very small amount of people, a strategic landscape, which has been already controlled by Israel for a very long time. This is just increasingly taking from other people who really can't defend themselves. And if they do try to defend themselves, you accuse them of attacking you. It's fundamentally wrong. It is. It's fundamentally wrong. So could it not be argued then that the Golan issue at least is uh, somewhat related to this in the sense that uh, I don't think that Benjamin Netanyahu would have tried anything like this with any other president. Certainly not with the previous one, and probably not even with, you know, just your average Republican no, president. I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that he would have tried this because he is facing very contentious re-election, and he wants to appeal to the ultra-conservatives. And that appeal comes from, we will take more territory, we will, we will aggrandize Israel. And that... I think that would have happened regardless of who was in charge. I mean, there's something to be said about, so uh, he's currently facing some legal troubles. It sounds yes. like he was, um, I believe he was indicted, wasn't he? He was, yes. Yeah, indicted on several corruption charges, I think it was. But I, I still think that, you know, he would be at least a little bit more concerned about what another president would do. Because uh, there are some, you know, levers, some mechanisms that another president could wield that would maybe... You know, push BB back a little bit and maybe keep him from doing something like this. I mean, there's other there's other diplomatic tools or recognitions that we could use, or you know, anything like that, to uh, to try to keep him from taking this. What pretty much everyone is going to see as a very extreme step. Well, I think we could try that, but then we saw that in the Obama administration with Obama trying that, and basically uh, Netanyahu just ignored him. Uh, and started trying to form relations with different parties. I think he started forming relations with Russia to an extent. He also he obviously went directly to the Republicans, the opponents of domestic opponents of President Obama, and directly appealed for their assistance. I, I think that regardless of who was in charge, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, if Bernie Sanders had been elected, who cares? It this would be happening right now. I mean, at a certain point, you know, I guess we'll never know. It's true. If these are all anti-historicals <laughs> yeah. that we're playing with right now, it's <laughs> we. This could have happened, but a comet also could have hit the Earth in like, I don't know, in twenty twenty. So it might not all matter. Who knows? Minds might have been right. I don't think there's anything that the U.S. president can do about it. I think that. Well, I guess they can, but I don't think it would matter. So then, if none of it matters, I mean, should the average American care? I, I am I am of two minds on this issue because I fundamentally 
don't believe that the average American can stay up to date on all foreign policy all across the world. I mean, it is. We, they have we their try own to lives follow to this live. stuff and we can't even keep no, up yeah, with right? it. And we care about oh, it man. to a very strong extent. Oh, definitely. It's, yeah, no, we, uh, I am sure that we read between us at least maybe, what, probably 100 articles a week. And I, I don't think that we're going to be able to keep up on everything around the world. And it's impossible to try to do that. Um, I'm not sure that, so like what you're saying, what you're going down to, I'm not sure that the average U.S. citizen should care about this sort of issue. Their representatives should care. That is something that if you talk to your representative and you ask them about the Golan issue, whether it be a House member or a Senate member, or they talk to them about the West Bank or, yeah, sorry, the, uh, no, yeah, the West Bank issue or the Jerusalem issue, and they don't know, they shame on them at that case. Well, then shouldn't we all at least have a basic understanding of it? Other than, otherwise, then we're never going to ask our representatives that kind of thing in the first place. I think that's up to the individual. Um, so I think that that is, when I say up to the individual, I mean, I think that is up to the people who know about it. It is up to you, me, and the people who listen to this podcast to bring that issue up. I do not think that it is up to my parents, who will never pay attention to foreign policy, to bring that up because they have too much going on with their lives. I don't think that is up to the middle school teacher who it has to try to figure out their next lesson plan. I don't think that is up to the farmer who has to try to plot out what crops are going to plant where next year because they have too much going on. That's up to the people who actually do pay attention. And that is something that we need to bring to the forefront. That is our responsibility. Uh, the average American cannot be a generalist on everything. You cannot even be a, you, you, you can't be a jack of all trades. It's impossible. Not in the type of society we've created, not in the specialized society we have created. I mean, at the risk of sounding completely contradictory, maybe this is one of the areas where it's not necessarily that big of a deal to the average American. You know, the purpose of this podcast is to bring these issues to everyone's attention or to at least help uh, increase your just general understanding of these uh, of these issues. And this is one where, yeah, it seems like it could be important on the face of it. Maybe it's not necessarily as big of a deal as you might think. I still think that it's it's something people ought to be aware of and to follow. But, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, sure, maybe there are bigger issues to focus on. Yeah, no, and as I said, that is the purpose of this podcast, this uh, of the Orientalist Express site. We really should, and to anyone who's also listening to this podcast or has any involvement in foreign affairs or wants to have any involvement in foreign affairs, that is your job to do this. If you understand this issue, if you know about this issue, it is your job to try to bring it up to our public leaders. It is your job to try to educate anyone else who wants to learn about it. That is a, that is a functioning democratic society right there. We shouldn't know about everything, but those who do know should be able should be willing to act on what they know. Well, you heard it here first, listeners. Go forth, oh. and, go forth and call your representatives. Make sure that they know about the Golan Heights. Make sure they know about potential annexing of West Bank settlements and make sure that they're actually going to say something about it. I do want to go back a little bit, though. Sure. 
to the seizure of lands via military means and that being a norm in the world. If no one I if no one accepts that norm as something that they base their normal, I guess, processes off of. So if Russia is seizing stuff in Ukraine, they're willing to seize stuff in Latvia and Estonia, and China is going to start trying to seize Duarte. <laughs> He's going to start seizing Duarte's islands, and that honeymoon's over, which is fantastic, because <laughs> maybe he should... Maybe the Philippines shouldn't have actually cozied up to China. Maybe it was a bad decision. <laughs> Probably was. Shouldn't have, uh, you know, spit in the face of your American allies, maybe? Yes, that was probably a really stupid decision. Um, but if no one respects that, why should the United States try to defend that principle? If no one looks at that principle as a real thing, why should the United States go out of its way to defend that principle? I think that people still do adhere to that norm. Maybe not necessarily some of the largest nations, but a lot of the smaller ones still do. And you may you may say, like, look, yeah, they're small nations. They don't matter. But, I mean, it does matter, right? Like, if, you know, if France and Germany decided that they wanted to re restart their wars of territorial conquest between each other, that's a huge problem. Even though they're smaller nations and, you know, they're not necessarily to the level of China taking... The entirety of the South China Sea, you know, it still further erodes global stability and security if you know if a handful or even a majority of these nations don't see and believe in this norm anymore. So I'll put it to you that those smaller countries and the less uh, economically prosperous countries don't seize territory not because they um, don't want to or they're adhering to international norms, but they don't have the capability to. So. Countries like Russia, like China, they have the ability to seize territory when they want to. Countries like, I don't know, uh, Mali, um, like Oman, like Indonesia, don't really have that much power to seize territory. Um, so the only countries that we should be worried about are the ones who are actually abrogating the perceived norm. So the only countries really where it matters to defend this norm are those superpowers or powers that are Brazil, China, Russia, India, etc. Sure, but shouldn't we still scold them for doing it? I don't know. Should we? That's getting in. If we're not going to be willing to pony up and actually get in the weeds of any single issue, should we really try to... Uh, get involved, and I guess going even further, as we've talked before, should the United States be getting involved in all these extraterritorial conflicts when our resources right now are stretched as is, and we're looking at a period where we're probably going to have to at least retrench, if not completely withdraw, from a large portion of the world? Well, I'm not necessarily sure I agree we'd need to withdraw, but speaking to the, the previous point, I mean, I think that we should still push back on this type of thing we should still talk about it because it is does change that conversation it steers the global conversation to at least rally around some type of response to russia and china i mean if when russia seized crimea if we all just said well i mean you know it is majority russians uh, whatever i guess guess it's yours then that would embolden russia to to do even more but the fact that we still hold to this norm that we still say you cannot do that and because of this we're going to enact the following real world consequences i mean we can we can debate whether sanctions do this or that or the other thing but 
there's still something and there is still other nations that are taking up that cause and rallying around that talking point of you can't do this we're going to do something about it so i think that it still does have an impact i mean just because you know just because someone like goes and murders someone in another country we can still sit back here and go that's murder Uh, that's that's wrong like you shouldn't do that we can't do anything about it but that's wrong and we're still going to shame you for it so and i'm not sure i agree with that because ukraine so that example when they took uh, crimea the entire world went whoa that's not okay you can't do that so what do they do they also tried to take eastern ukraine um in the donetsk reason region sorry and there's been i mean there's been rhetorical pushback yeah but germany basically just approved the uh Oh, what is it? Um, Nord Stream project with Russia, which completely circulate or circumvents Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, and is a boon for for Moscow. There's there's no real pushback on this. So why are we doing that? Why are why are we getting involved with our resources where I they might be able to be spent better in different areas? So, for context, Nord Stream being, I believe it's a natural gas pipeline, right? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. pretty much between Germany and uh, and Russia, it's, thus making yep. Germany very dependent on Russia. If Russia was ever, you know, wanted to use that leverage, they could just shut off the gas and obviously Germany would be in a lot of trouble. So yeah, I mean, you know, there's still some realities that these nations are you know, doing some type of business with these other nations. I mean, we still trade with, with China at a very large rate. I mean, maybe not necessarily right this moment because of all the trade tariffs and things like that, but like we still have to work with our our adversaries in some way. It's just we can still push back in other ways. I mean, yeah, Germany does they're they're still approving this pipeline project, but that doesn't mean that they're not pushing back in other ways. Unless unless we were gonna do like a complete embargo of literally anything from Russia or from China for that matter, which is just unrealistic. I think it's unrealistic for China. I'm not sure it's unrealistic for Russia, for the United States, but um, I will say I, so my, my concern really is that we are defending these principles basically alone. I don't, we are the country that is investing resources into defending Ukraine. We are the country who's defend, who's pushing in resources to defend the South China Sea. And I should say the countries besides the ones that are immediately affected. We are the only one that is upholding the norm for the sake of upholding the norm. The only one in the world. What is that? So we are just trying to play global policemen. And that, I think, has been said by a lot of people that isn't sustainable. It's not a good idea. I mean, I think I think part of the reason that we continue to do that is because we aren't sure what it would look like in a world where nobody is pushing for that norm at all. I mean, do we really want to imagine what China would do if they thought that they could actually get away with whatever they wanted. They could do, they could do a lot. I think they could do a lot, but it's, I think that the rest of the world doesn't worry about it because they think, well, the U S is going to be there. The U S will do it. So they'll get, so they'll get worried now that the United States doesn't seem to want to, you know, prop up its own uh, global international order anymore. I'm not sure about that. I am. I don't know. I'm posing this as a, as a rhetorical question because it's, not a rhetorical question. I'm sorry. A, as a, just a debating point, because I, I think it's a, something that I debate with myself. And I think it's something that we should all kind of try to think about at this point in time is the United States is overstretched. We've talked about it on this podcast multiple times. And 
the United States cannot keep doing what it has been doing. There is just, we, we can't do it. So what are the breaking points? What are the norms that we're going to try to defend? What are the areas we're going to try to defend? And when major powers, what, I guess what I should say is how big a fit are we going to throw when major powers seize little areas? And is that sustainable in the long run? Because I don't think that most people would see Ukraine, the Ukrainian conflict, as something that is necessarily we're winning, or the Ukraine is winning, or that Russia's winning. It's just a stalemate in Ukraine causing a whole bunch of destruction. And and I suppose the, the counterfactual to that is you know, well, I guess we'll never really know, right? Like how many, how many wars, how many other territorial conquests have been stopped, you know, well before they would ever even start because they look at what's happening in Ukraine. They look at the response and go, I'm not even going to try that. That's a good point. There is a, there's a big counterfactual there in the, what is the deterrence prevented? And we can never know what the deterrence has prevented. You are completely correct. Aha. All right. I win. Let's uh, shut it down then. That's it. It's done. Nailed it. (laughs) You're here first, folks. I just don't know. It's uh, just something where if if Sudan tries to invade Egypt to take uh, the contested portion of their border, is that something where we go, no, we are definitely behind our Egyptian El Sisi? Or is that something where we go, you guys figure that out. This is not something where we're going to try to get invested in i mean i think i think it's clear that we wouldn't invest you know direct military resources we wouldn't put boots on the ground or anything like that we might do a little bit of you know behind the scenes support um but you know that then maybe that's not necessarily what we need right i mean how much does it really cost to just scold someone in international relations to say i don't like what you're doing and wag a finger at them and then what's the point of that what's What's the the point when we actually defend these norms, like in Ukraine, like in the South China Sea, we defend them via military means. We are providing lots of military assistance to Ukraine. We are providing lots of military assistance in the South China Sea in the form of um, freedom of access patrols, of stationing of ships, uh, trying to embolden the ally, our allies in that area. You can. It's not going to be something where you can just throw a couple sanctions on them and go, now, now, don't do that again. And all right, well, we've already taken the area, so good on you, buddy. I mean, isn't that uh, isn't that sort of almost nihilistic <laughs> realism at that point? I don't know. I mean, just saying, like, ah, people are gonna do what they're gonna do, so whatever. I just know? what so for me, it's just what, what so what extent should the United States then be involved in in those sorts of situations? To what extent is it the United States' position to invest resources in those sorts of things and conflicts i don't necessarily think that we need to invest or that we ought to invest a lot of resources in some of the you know the really more far-flung types of conflicts i mean the the ones that are central to core interests obviously but you know kind of as i was saying like something between sudan and egypt i mean it, it doesn't cost anything to have more of a rhetorical sort of response so why not do it yeah i guess i Sure, it might not. It's, it might not affect that individual one, but um, it's sort of the the unknown factor of if you know that the United States is never going to do anything, then that's not going to be a factor in your decisions. But if you think maybe 
maybe this time they might actually just get upset enough about this, or they might decide that yes, Egypt actually is one of our core strategic interests, so we're going to back them fully. That that at least changes their calculation a little bit. So I don't, but and no one no one sees it that way anyways anymore. No one says, well, if we do this, the United States will definitely act against us. Well, no, the United States has just come out of a massive conflict in Iraq. They're trying to come out of a massive conflict in Afghanistan. And they can barely get involved anywhere else across the world without significant domestic upheaval. No, one, no one's going to really be fearful of that. That's why that's that's literally all of Putin's bets right there is that the United States won't get involved. And we barely get involved. And that's so they just keep going. But until we figure out what our core interests are, these debates are going to be very, I think, very poignant. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guest Stephen for his insight and analysis, as well as the listeners and readers of our blog. Remember to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook page, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll see you next time.